All right, well, before we get back to Matthew 6, I want to start us off this morning in Acts chapter 5. So take your Bibles and now turn over to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, one of the more shocking and unexpected passages in Scripture. You have the, the new church beginning in Acts chapter 2. This is where thousands of Jews accept Jesus as their Savior. They come under the teaching of the apostles. And then they don't want to go home. Most of these Jews were in Jerusalem for the feast. And now coming to Christ, they don't want to go back home. They want to stay and, and continue under the teaching of the apostles to fellowship with this new church. So you have thousands of people now in Jerusalem staying, and it generated, you could say, like a hospitality crisis. Who is going to long-term house and feed all these people? Well, the answer to that question comes in Acts chapter 4. Those who were wealthy in Jerusalem started just giving generously to meet the needs of all these transplanted new believers. Some even went so far as to sell their property to support these new Christians. So like Acts 4.34 says, it says, For there is not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And Acts chapter 4 ends with a positive example of just that. Barnabas was one of these guys. He was wealthy. He even sold a tract of land and gave the proceeds to support all these new believers. That's how Acts chapter 4 ends. Acts chapter 5 then immediately begins with a negative example of this giving. So now, Acts chapter 5, look at verse 1. It says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, you and I already can see what's going on here. See the deceit. This was a couple. They're wealthy. They sold their property. And then they were broadcasting that they were giving all the proceeds to the church. But in secret, they were they're really going to keep back some of the proceeds for themselves. They just wanted the appearance of being super generous and godly. But the apostle Peter was there and he saw through their scheme. Verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Well, it remained unsold, did not remain your own. And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. See, no one was forcing Ananias and Sapphira to sell their property. They didn't have to do this. All this giving was supposed to be just free will, voluntary offerings. And when they did sell, likewise, there was no requirement that they gave 100% of the proceeds to the church. They could have given all or half or 1% or whatever they wanted. The problem was that Ananias and Sapphira, they were claiming that they were giving it all. When in reality, they knew that was a lie. He just wanted to give the appearance again of being generous and godly, but that only made him self-righteous hypocrite. And so verse five, it says, and as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him. And after carrying him out, they buried him. Like I said, a shock, especially if you've never read this passage before, that God, God killed Ananias for this sin. And later, just a few hours later, the exact same thing happens to his wife, by the way. They bury her too. And such hypocrisy has no place in the church. This brand new church was to be a spirit-filled, heart-driven community who worships God in spirit and truth. And so the leaven of Ananias and Sapphira's hypocrisy could not be allowed to spread in, in the new church. Ananias and Sapphira performed what appeared to be a good deed on the outside, giving all this money. But under the surface, their giving was for their own glory. And, and be clear, they didn't have a money problem. They had a heart problem, one that translated to hypocrisy and deceit. And so God decided to make an example out of them send a message to this new church that it's meant to be holy as Christ is holy. The church must be a set apart people driven by a heart for God, bearing good fruit. 
Now, as Christians, we're not saved by works or by deeds of righteousness, contrary to every other world religion. Every world religion teaches works righteousness. You have to do good. You have to earn your merit before God that he might accept you. You got to get to work. But no, scripture alone teaches that this, this fruit we're meant to yield can be often spoiled by impure motives. A few things are as disappointing as planting a, f- a fruit tree. You're caring for it for years as it's maturing. And finally, you get a harvest only to find that all the, the fruit was spoiled by some rot. God planted us that we might bear fruit. He wants to see good fruit. And spoiled fruit, he will reject. Unfortunately, the Jews of Christ's day had fallen into the trap of works righteousness. And they were producing a crop of mostly corrupted fruit. But this new church can't afford to make the same mistake. That's why the early church needed such a stark warning. And so do we. And why do you do all the good things that you do? Are you truly doing all things to the glory of God? We say that. But are some things secretly to the glory of self? Examine your heart. Beware impure motives. That's the warning Jesus gave to us in our passage from last week, going through the Sermon on the Mount. We just got into Matthew chapter 6. That's where Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. He tells us, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Thereafter, in verses 2 through 4, he goes on to use the example of giving. Highlighting those who performed the good deed of charity, but from self-seeking motives. You know, giving to the poor, it's, it's meant to be a genuine fruit of righteousness. But it can easily be disqualified if it comes from impure motives. And Christ himself, he calls out the impure motive of pride. In verse 2, essentially pride. Some were giving out of, out of a vain glory, a desire to be seen noticed, honored by others. This is just the idolatry of self. And just as that witch in Snow White poisoned a perfectly good apple, turning it from delicious to deadly, so you add the poison of pride to your giving, it, it's spoiled. God knows enough, though, to reject it. Such giving carries no reward with God. It, it might even come with his discipline, And so this was the lesson we took in last week, just heeding this call from the Lord to beware, to examine our hearts, and to root out any remnant of greed we might find, or I should say pride we might find, any impure motive that our giving might be pure and uh, pleasing to the Lord. Now, that's not the final word, though, because there there are some other poisons that can spoil our spiritual fruit, especially our giving. Maybe you might say you're free from the desire to be seen by others, to be honored by others. But there are other impure motives that are just as poisonous and can disqualify your deeds, your giving, for example, just as much. And you likewise need to be made aware of these that you might, like Jesus says, take caution, beware. And that is what I want to help you with this morning. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus He picks the example of giving first, this overall command, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. But he picks the example of giving first because he knows that there's a direct conduit from our money to our hearts. When you follow someone's money and their spending, you're going to find out what they care about real fast. You're going to find their heart's desires real fast. And how we give away our money, though, it's meant to be one of the chief expressions of our love for God and, and our love for others. But I have to say this, this giving, the spiritual fruit of giving, it's got to be one of the quickest fruits to spoil. And so I think it's worthwhile for us to, to consider further how we are to give free from impure motives. To kind of circle back on this passage as a springboard one more time, but take it further. What, what are other impure motives that, that affect our deeds. So I figured this would be a perfect opportunity to piggyback off the Lord's teaching. And I want to highlight two more impure motives, which can just as easily, easily tarnish the good you do. 
Christ himself, verse 2 through 4, he calls out the motive of pride. We covered that last week. When you're giving, it's motivated to be seen, to be honored, to be worshipped. God rejects it. It counts for nothing before him. But there are a few other poisons in the heart you need to beware. And we need to expose these because, like I said, our, our giving is meant to be that supreme expression of how we love God, how we love others. And how tragic would it be if, if you learned that so much of your deeds, so much of your giving was never accepted by the Lord. You did the deed, but he never accepted it because it came from a poisoned heart. So just a, a follow-up lesson from last week then. But I want to reveal two more heart motives that poison the fruit of giving and their antidotes. Two more heart motives that poison the fruit of giving but we'll also include, you might say, their antidotes. You need to know how else giving turns sour in the heart and how to counteract it because we want to be a people and a church that offers pleasing fruit and worship to the Lord. So let's get into this. The first of these additional impure motives would be greed. First one is greed. We point this out because Christ elsewhere pointed this out. You can listen to Luke twelve fifteen. Luke 12, 15, Christ said, beware, same warning, and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And what is the sin of greed? It is the lust to have more. And we usually associate greed with the love of money, and it certainly includes that. But the term for greed, Christ cautions us against is actually much broader. It speaks of really just longing for fulfillment or satisfaction, which by itself is not bad. What makes this greed sinful is that we've forsaken God as the only source of that fulfillment and satisfaction. We instead look to the things of the world, stuff ourselves with the things of the world as if that will make us happy. We've exchanged the creator for the creation We've abandoned the fountain of living waters for broken cisterns that can hold no water. But of course, the reason greed is so often associated with money is that money is the primary means of us acquiring all the things our heart desires. All the things that supposedly make us happy. We think if, if we just had unlimited money, then we would finally have unlimited happiness. Because then we could just buy everything our heart desired. It's just a gateway to all the other things we want, and then we'd be fulfilled. That's what most people believe. And the funny thing is, there have been several people throughout history who have seemingly succeeded. They have acquired, essentially, unlimited money from Solomon to Henry Ford. But they all kind of have a way of testifying on their deathbed that it didn't work. Right? It, it, that all that money still didn't buy happiness or fulfillment lasting satisfaction. They still were empty. We're springboarding off of Matthew 6. So you can turn to 1 Timothy 6 this morning, looking at a few other passages. So we're adding other motives to beware. 1 Timothy 6 is a, a key one. You know, as Christians, we say we know better. We say that our fulfillment is found in the Lord only. But, but even for believers, greed can still easily infiltrate the heart and start calling the shots. You know, functionally, do you live as if more money is the answer to your life's problems and not God? I'll ask that again. Do you functionally live as if more money is the real answer to all of your life's problems and, and not God? Do you hope in riches? And even God's people can fall prey to this greed. That's why Paul has to issue this warning, his own warning, 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10. It's not wrong to be rich, but he says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
And scripture contains many serious cautions against greed. It's just a gateway to a world of sin and ruin. And and once it occupies the heart, it, it becomes like a poisoned well. And everything that comes out is likewise defiled. It's no good. And it, that most definitely is going to affect our giving, right? The giving that comes out of such a heart, a greedy heart, is going to be tainted, defiled, corrupted. And greed and covetousness are major culprits in affecting the otherwise righteous deed of charity. You know, in general, the, the greedy heart simply doesn't give, refuses to give. They hold on tightly to their money. They find ways to rationalize their avarice. You say a need arises in the church and they've got plenty of means to meet that little need, but they, they reason that, I mean, they can't give now. They need all their money to invest. That way later they'll, they'll be able to take care of some really big needs, right? So they don't need to give right now. But if you think greed only diminishes as you make more money, you are sorely mistaken, I mean, unless crucified, greed will maintain a chokehold on one's heart. There's a story of a church meeting where a very wealthy man rose to testify of his Christian faith. He told the crowd, you know, I'm a millionaire. And I attribute the rich blessings of God in my life or rich blessings in my life to God. He recalls that early in his life and his faith, he just earned his first dollar. He only had one dollar to his name. And he went to a church meeting, a missionary was speaking, telling about his work. And he, he testified how right then and there, he knew what he had to do. He knew God was calling him to give his whole dollar to the missionary. He only had one dollar to his name. But he knew in that moment he had to give his dollar, give it all away to the Lord. So that's what he did. He testified, I gave my one dollar to the Lord. And he said, I believe that God blessed that decision. And that's why I'm a rich man today. A millionaire. He took a seat. The crowd was stunned and awed in silence. What a testimony. But as he sat down, a little old lady sitting next to him leaned over and said, I dare you to do it again. (laughs) Wouldn't be so easy the second time once you're a millionaire. But as you know, greed, greed has a way of outright stopping our giving. And that doesn't diminish as you make more money. It can be like a dam that just plugs up a river. For others, they might give, but not much. Greed slows or stifles their giving, kind of like boulders piled up in a river. It's just a trickle. By no means would they ever be described as generous. You know, eventually enough social pressure or religious guilt builds on them and they're, they're forced to give a little. But if that happens, they're not going to be happy about it. They'll probably let you know with some grumbling, some complaining, they will give begrudgingly. As you can already see, this is a serious issue. It's, it's a common issue. Greed can be a potent poison in the heart. Later in Matthew, Christ himself will issue this cautionary tale about it in the parable of the soils, where he's describing the seed sown among the thorns. He says this of that person. This is Matthew 13, 22. He says, and the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Now, I trust you don't want that to be you. you. You want to be fruitful. You want to honor the Lord in all you do. You want your giving to count. But greed can still spoil your fruit. So you need to be made aware of this heart motive. You need to examine your heart. Has it infected you? But let's not stop there and merely calling out greed. Let's, let's ask then for the antidote to this poison. What, what do we do about it? Uh, I think it's safe to say a little bit of greed is in all of our hearts. What are we to do about it? And here I'll let you know that the, the antidote to greed in the heart is contentment, contentment in the heart. When contentment replaces greed in the heart, you, you'll find your way. You have to replace greed with contentment. That happens as you daily renew your mind with God's word, which speaks to you and tells you not all you lack, but all you already have in Christ. You already have all things in Christ. What do you really need? 
If you're still in 1 Timothy 6, right before warning against the love of money, Paul says this, look at verse 6, 1 Timothy 6. He says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into this world. Uh, we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. You have to remember, greed is not just about money, but satisfaction or fulfillment in life. I mean, again, we tell ourselves, if, if you just had more money, you could buy more things, more experiences, more stuff, you'd be happy, you'd be fulfilled. But I hope you know that's a lie. Rather, the one who is content is the one who's already fulfilled in the Lord, in Christ. They have an inner disposition of peace because they've returned to the fountain of living water, which is never exhausted. They found peace for their souls. May not always be well with their body or their bank account. We're not guaranteed that, but it's well with their soul. And that can never change in Christ. Everyone has earthly needs and wants, but you know, we're entitled to neither. Right? Scripture says the wages of sin is death and all have sinned. So the only thing all of us merit from God is judgment. But in his amazing mercy, because of his great love, he sent, he sacrificed his own son to, to buy you, to redeem you. This is why Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for all of our sins, to offer us forgiveness. He now gives to us, rising from the dead, this gift of eternal life. And in so doing, he was meeting our eternal needs. Because in reality, we've got much bigger needs than being too poor to buy the new iPhone. I mean, we're facing eternal death in hell, separated from the goodness of our creator because of our sin. But Jesus swallowed up our eternal debt on the cross and exchanges that for eternal life. So if you know this Christ by faith, you have that eternal life now. That's enough to make us content forever. I mean, what more do we really need? Yeah, we still have wants here below. We're not always evil or sinful to have wants here below. And if God gives material blessing on top of his salvation, yeah, that's just grace upon grace. We will, we'll praise him for that too. But we don't need that to be happy anymore. Our joy is no longer tied to the things of the world, but now it's tied to the Lord. That's why scripture calls it the joy of the Lord. And since you can't lose the Lord, that means you can never lose the source of your contentment. And to the degree that you're abiding in Christ and resting in Christ, you will experience this contentment, the peace of your soul that you're meant to have in him. And then when you find that, when you find that contentment, it's going to drastically change how you relate to money. It's going to change your spending, going to change your saving, going to change your giving. Money is no longer your God. You no longer need money to be happy. Your primary drive in life is no longer to gain and keep money that you may spend it on your pleasures. Again, there's nothing wrong with working hard, earning a wage, and enjoying some of the good gifts in this life. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's just no longer the, the purpose of your life. You don't need things and stuff and experiences like you used to. Now, instead, when another need arises, maybe the need of the poor in your midst or a need in the church or a need of a missionary, all of a sudden you find yourself just compelled to give your hard-earned money to that need. And, and you're happy to do so. No one makes you do that. No religious guilt is involved. You're just you're content in Christ and you just want to show your love for this God who loved you and this Savior who gave himself up for you, you're happy to give. And in that moment, the fruit of righteousness pops up on your tree and I, I can guarantee that taste is well-pleasing to the Lord. You need to apply the salve of contentment to your heart, which is harvested from the word of God. It's daily, continually meant to remind us everything he's already given to us. We lack nothing. We should be content. And when that happens, when you gain this contentment, I'll give you one more step here. When it comes to your giving, 
It will go from being greedy to generous. You'll, you'll bear the, the fruit of generosity, generous giving. Why don't you keep a bookmark in 1 Timothy 6, because we'll be back. But now turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Another critical passage on, on finances, on stewardship. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul is, is discussing this collection he was raising for the impoverished saints in Jerusalem. He's going from church to church, raising funds because the, the mother church in Jerusalem was having a real hard time. So he's discussing that in these two chapters. And first, I want you to see how he boasts in the generosity of the Macedonian churches, which really was just a boast in the grace of God. Like he says, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And the Macedonian churches themselves were extremely poor, but they were content. They're content. And so when they heard about this need for the Jerusalem saints, even though they had all their own affliction to deal with, just the, the abundance of joy they had in the Lord compelled them to just throw some pennies together and give. And it's not about the money. They did this freely. No one forced them to give. They did this generously. Some were giving beyond their ability. They just believed it was a favor to participate in the support of the saints. That's what we call spiritual fruit. They saw after the reward or the blessing that God promises to the cheerful giver. Now go to 2 Corinthians 9, the next chapter. And Paul now urges the Corinthians to be like them, to, to give like that. 2 Corinthians 9, look at verse 6. He says, Now this I say, he who uh, sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Same thing Jesus said, in, in essence, more blessed to give than to receive. And like he said in our passage from last week in Matthew 6, that those who give rightly in secret, that the Father in heaven sees them and will reward them. And Paul illustrates here with this verse, the blessedness of generosity with, with the farming illustration. And if you, it's kind of obvious, you sow just a few seeds, you're going to reap a small harvest. If you sow a lot of seeds, you're going to reap a bountiful harvest. I mean, just pretend you inherit 500 acres of nice farmland and you think, maybe I can do something with it. So you inquire, maybe plant some wheat there and how much is it going to cost? You find it'll cost $10,000 alone just for the seed. You think to yourself, I don't want to spend $10,000 on seed. I'd rather buy a car. So you buy a car. But if you had invested that seed and planted the whole field, do you know how much you stand to make? Just, you know, let's say wheat goes for around $10 a bushel and one acre will give you 10 bushels or 100 bushels rather, you'd net $500,000. Now that's net, but still, what do you think of your $10,000 investment? But elsewhere, Jesus reiterates the same point, that God does bless generosity because it's a mark of faith. And that is what pleases him above all. In a real way, God promises to bless us in proportion to the measure of our faith as reflected in our giving. Listen to Luke 6, verse 38. is where Christ says, give and it will be given to you. They will pour it into your lap, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. If you give generously, God promises to generously bless you in return. Now, whenever we teach on this, we have to add the biblical caution that never is this greater reward promised in the form of uh, finances or money, right? God is not a financial advisor telling you how to get rich. 
And do you really think he's going to appeal to your greed to motivate you to give? <laughs> it's very sad and tragic how many televangelists prey on the greed of people by coercing them to give to them to get blessed, to get more money. The typical promise is that if they sow a seed of $100 to their ministry, of course, that God will surely increase it on them some way a hundredfold. But if these televangelists are so convinced God is promising a financial reward, why don't they take their own advice? Why don't they take their millions, sow that as a seed in faith, give it all away? By their own promise and their own logic, God should return it to them, make them billionaires. So why don't they do that first? Again, I don't think you're going to find anyone take up that giving challenge. But no, God is not telling us to give generously just so that we get rich on earth in return. It is true, God may choose to financially prosper his people from Abraham to Job. That's his grace upon grace. There's nothing wrong with that. But understand God's blessings take many forms. From joy to holiness to heavenly reward. And very shortly in the Sermon on the Mount, like we read this morning, Christ is going to tell us to be storing up our treasure, not on earth, but in heaven. And as believers give generously from a pure heart, they can be sure that they're doing just that. This teaching applies to all of us, even the poor, as those Macedonian believers testified. But I think, again, it's especially pertinent for those who are rich, whom God has blessed financially. You can now bookmark 2 Corinthians and go back to 1 Timothy 6. Because right after Paul issued those warnings on the love of money, here's what he says. First uh, Timothy 6, 17 and 18. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous. And ready to share. You know, for believers who have already been richly blessed by God in this life, what's stopping you from being like God and richly blessing others who are in need? Just as God was pleased to bless you, you, you should be pleased to bless others in return. But look, whether you're rich or poor, when your heart goes from greedy to content, your giving will suddenly become generous. Whether for you that means $5 or $5 million, the money is not what matters. When the heart is right, any giving becomes a, a spiritual fruit that is truly pleasing to the Lord. And that's what he wants because he wants us. He wants our hearts. Let's give to him free from greed, but from contentment. Now we're not done. There's one more impure motive I think we need to recognize. We need to unveil I mean, giving is something we do each week. We're called to give. It is important, but it, this is a deed that, like I said, gets quickly spoiled. So let's, let's do one more, one more impure motive to uncover. The second one for this morning would be obligation. Obligation. A second impure heart motive that can spoil the righteous deed of giving is obligation. This is giving under compulsion, giving begrudgingly. And this motive definitely leads people to, to give with their hands. They'll do it, but not with their heart. And anytime our heart is cut off from our deeds, it's not fruit. It's vain before God. And I think this heart motive is especially important to uncover because it's just all too common. Each week, countless Christians drop their offering in the plate and they're faithful to give. But, you know, in God's register, I wonder how many of those offerings never count. They make it into the church's bank account, but do are they ever registered in, in God's account? And every harvest experiences some loss due to rot. How much of your spiritual fruit has never even made it to heaven's doors because of impure motives? Again, when it comes to obligation, not necessarily an evil motive, but by no means a good motive or a right motive. But I would wager a large percentage of Christians give each week out of a sense of religious obligation or religious guilt, neither of which are supported by the scriptures as a reason to give. I'm going to try and give you the the short version explanation of this and where I'm going. 
I think most Christians today associate their giving with tithing. A tithe is a 10% offering, and they believe God has commanded them to give 10% of all they earn to the church. It's an obligation. It's a duty. It doesn't matter if they want to or not. They're supposed to give 10%, and that's that. But that is wrong. It's stemming from a, 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 a confusion about the roles of Israel and the church. It is true. God commanded the Israelites to tithe. Moses required a tithe from the Jews, or rather I should say the law of Moses required a tithe from the Jews living in the land. And it is true, that tithe was not optional. It was compulsory. It was obligatory. It didn't matter if you wanted to give or not. You had to give. It's kind of like a tax. In fact, it was exactly like a tax. You have to remember, uh, Israel was a theocracy, which essentially means the church and the state are the same thing. And the tithe was offered in the Lord's name, but where'd the money actually go? That money went to the state, aka the church, or for them, the theocracy. And in Israel's theocracy, this tithe went primarily to the state workers. For them, that was the Levites, the priests. The tribe of Levi had no inheritance in the land. They relied entirely on the giving of the people to eat, to live, to be supported. The tithe went to feed and support the priesthood. And the temple. The law of Moses also prescribed a second tithe. There's, there's another one. This was uh, meant to support the state holidays, i.e., for them, that was the religious feasts, Passover, so forth. And there was even a third tithe to be given every third year. That was kind of like their welfare system. It was given to the poor, the needy, the stranger in their land. So you put them all together, and that the faithful Jew would be giving about 23% of his income to the state each and every year in these tithes. If you think 10%, you got to bump it up. You're, you need to be at 23. <laughs> now, as you can expect, later generations of Jews, they were not always so faithful in giving their tithes to the Lord. And so there are times when the temple was unsupported, the priests were unsupported. And that's why later prophets rose up and they started rebuking the people, accusing them of robbing God, which they were, because this was their obligation. You fast forward to today, and you'll often hear the same message preached in churches. In fact, literally, randomly, I heard a radio preacher give that exact same message just two weeks ago. Essentially saying, like, if you're, you're a Christian today, and if you don't tithe your 10% to the church, you are robbing God. But that is false, and it generates an unqualified religious guilt. I have no problem commanding, or uh, rather calling on Christians to obey everything the Lord has commanded them, of course. It's just that Christians are never commanded to tithe. Not once. Did you know that? Not a single New Testament command for the Christian to tithe. In fact, what if I told you that the New Testament, uh, no Christian is even described as tithing? What if I told you tithing is entirely absent, not even referenced for the New Testament church? This is not to say the New Testament has nothing to say about giving, has a lot to say about giving, but you see there's a big difference between giving and tithing. And again, that difference relates to the difference between Israel and the church. Israel was the old covenant people of God living in the land as a theocracy under the law of Moses. That's not the church. There's plenty of continuity between Israel and the church, but at the end of the day, the church is the new covenant people of God living in all the nations under the law of Christ. If you're not familiar with these concepts, you know, go back and get our sermons on Matthew 5, 17 through 20. In the Sermon on the Mount, we hashed all this stuff out in great detail just a few months ago. But we we still believe every single word of the Old Testament is inspired, it's profitable, it's applicable to the Christian, but not in the same form. Christ fulfilled the law. And so the laws on tithing They have a type of application, but they do not directly apply to the church anymore. I know I probably shouldn't teach on this. Probably one of the few preachers who teaches on giving and the offering goes down, right? Like, so you're saying I don't have to give 10% anymore. I can finally start saving some money. But, you know, our concern is that you're governed by the word of God and the scriptures don't support carrying forward the practice of Israel into the church. Now, be advised, Christians are still commanded to give. 
New Testament, we've already read, has a lot to say about giving. But it's never as an obligation. Our giving is not like a tax. If that's how you've been approaching your offering each week, it's kind of like it's your tax, it's your little duty. You've been doing it all wrong. That motive, though subtle, has been spoiling your deed. If you want a real point of continuity between Old Testament giving and New Testament giving, think of the free will offering. Right beyond their obligatory tithes, God also prescribed for Israel free will offerings and free will sacrifices. These were forms of giving to the Lord, but they were optional. Right? A person would come not because it's required, but simply out of the overflow of their heart for God. They would give just because they wanted to, that God had blessed them and shown them love, redeemed them. They just wanted to show God love in return. You see a perfect example of this in the building of the tabernacle. That was a project that was going to require a ton of material and even lots of gold. Where was it all going to come from? It's going to come from the people. But God only wanted the people to contribute to this great work voluntarily. So God said this to Moses, Exodus 25, verse 2. He said, tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me from every man whose heart moves him. You shall raise my contribution. And the building of this tabernacle was to be a sign of, of Israel's love for God who just redeemed them from Egypt. And so for this to be meaningful, it had to be voluntary. And the people, in this case, rightly responded. Exodus 35, 29, it says the Israelites, all the men and women whose heart moved them to bring material for all the work, which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done, brought a free will offering to the Lord. In fact, they brought so much, they had more than they needed. Moses had to tell them to stop. But this was to God's glory. His people loved him for redeeming them from slavery in Egypt. They were happy to give. You know, all that treasure they had, they just plundered from the Egyptians anyway. They were happy to offer it to the Lord. The same should be true of your giving today. The New Testament has a lot to say about giving, but it's always now in the form of a free will offering. No longer in the form of a tithe, but always in the form of a free will offering. That's what God wants of us now. There's no more category for compulsory obligatory taxes for the new covenant church. Contrary to most church history, that's just not what the Bible says. When you go by scripture alone, God wants you to give because you have received his love and you love him in return. That's the type of giving that pleases the Lord. Let's flip back to 2 Corinthians 9, last time, last place. So go back to 2 Corinthians 9. And about that Jerusalem collection, Paul was not forcing any church to contribute to this offering. He didn't want them to do it out of obligation, only if they were moved. So along those lines, he reminds them, he says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Speaking of this collection, he says, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart not grudgingly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. But just think, what if your giving is motivated by obligation? What would that do? How would that sour your giving? I mean, for one, your giving would not be a joy. It would be a burden, right? Would you describe paying taxes each year an act of joy? Are you happy every April when it rolls around? I don't think so. How cheerful are you in paying your taxes? No, it's, it's an obligation. You have to. They'll put you in jail if you don't or do something. I mean, you just, you have no choice. And the IRS, though, they don't care if you're happy or not to give. They just want your money. You realize, though, it's the exact opposite for God. He does not really care about the dollar amount. He wants your heart. And your giving is merely a reflection of that. If your giving is not cheerful, do you really think God is honored when you drop in your little check? Another result of obligatory giving is you're just going to give the bare minimum. Even if there's a greater need, like God, he has my 10%. That's it. He's not going to get a penny more. He has enough of my paycheck. I got taxes, government, and then the church. Like, okay, I'm not going to give anything more. I give enough. Your heart is just guarded because you're just, this is, this is a tax. Why should you give more? 
But God is most pleased by a cheerful, sacrificial giver. He's not worried about decimal points or percentages. God delights in the one who gives to him just 100% of his heart and therefore happily gives to kingdom causes, whether that is above 10%, below 10%, like who cares? It's just what's the need, whatever I means, how's the Lord move my heart, and then I'll give. Again, this is why Paul praised those Macedonian Christians. He said of them once again in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Right? Not only did Paul praise them for giving according to their ability, some gave above and beyond their ability, but, but no one forced them. They gave cheerfully. They gave sacrificially. No one was twisting their arm. They understood the principle first issued by King David. I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. They, they put some skin in the game. They sacrificed even though they themselves were impoverished. And far beyond David, though, these Christians knew how much God sacrificed for them to redeem them. And they reasoned, how can we not sacrifice a little to honor God's name and help others? With all this in mind, hopefully now you can tell by yourself what the antidote to oblig- obligatory giving is. The antidote to obligation is simply love. The type of giving we've been describe- uh, describing here The type of giving that is pleasing fruit to God, it's not a chore. It's not a duty. It's not an obligation. It is a result. It's simply the result of a heart that has been impacted by the overwhelming gift of God. If I can reference one last verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it would be verse 9. A very special verse that should be highlighted in your Bible. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. In this context of giving, Paul says this. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor so that you through him might become rich. And this is not talking about finances. This is God's grace. You were poor. You were bankrupt. You were destined for an eternal debtor's jail. Meanwhile, God, the son, he's, he's rich. He's per, uh, abounding in, in riches, eternal glory, holiness, But being under no obligation, in some mystery, God's heart was moved in love to redeem us. And sacrificially, he gave his own son, his only begotten son, his treasure he gave up to redeem us. And you were bought with a price. You know the other verse, John 3, 16, that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God didn't have to do any of this, but he gave cheerfully, sacrificially to us. Christ was rich. He became poor, humbling himself to the point of taking on human nature, humbling himself to the point of dying on a cross. But now through him, if you trust in him, it says you become rich. His death becomes your death. His life becomes your life. And that means now his bank account is your bank account. He swallowed up all your debt. He's got infinite righteousness. That means now you're rich. Like you're, you're filthy rich in his righteousness. You have a seat at his table in the kingdom. And so if you have that, what else matters? You realize that that's your home now. And so you become more concerned with storing up treasure there in heaven. You become more concerned with seeing others find a seat at the table through evangelism. I mean, the more you set your mind on things above, you find the things of this world growing strangely dim. You find yourself caring a little bit less about stuff. And you find yourself compelled to just serve him, honor him, live your life for the glory of his name. And as a result of that, you're going to give. You're going to give your heart, your hands, your mouth to his kingdom purposes. You're going to give your time, your talents, your treasure to his kingdom purposes. And no one has to tell you. No one has to make you do that. You just, you just want to do that. And that right there is the sweetest fruit of righteousness to God. Giving matters mostly because God just, he wants us to be like him. He's a giving God. He's a self-giving God. It's part of his nature. And it's been said we are most like God when we give. 
And as we said a couple times, giving, I think, is just the chief way we can express our love for God and our love for others. But look, until we get to that kingdom, poisons abound. From pride, which we learned about last week, to greed, to obligation. These just, they get in our heart. They mess things up. They seriously can corrupt our giving. That's why we spent time twice over now to heed Christ's warning. Take care. Be, uh, open your eyes. Beware. And guard against these poisons. But as you're renewed daily in his word, you're going to find the ready antidotes. From humility to uh, contentment to love. So let us be a people who just draws near uh, to God. We're fed daily on his word. We're reminded of all of his grace gifts to us, what he's already given to us. That will continue to transform us into a people who gives him spiritual fruit uh, that is pure, that's well-pleasing to him. In all that we do, our giving and in everything that we do, may be done out of heart that really wants to just honor his name. The one who bought us. Let's uh, have a word of prayer. Well, Lord, we do give you thanks and honor this morning. Reminded by your word, what you have done for us. How you gave your only begotten son for us on the cross. For we were lost and uh, in eternal debt. There's nothing we could do to repay you. But moved in love, uh, a show of mercy, you, you gave your son to us. We've received untold treasure, yet now, even after receiving that, how we guard our little treasures on earth, our little bank accounts and all the stuff we have, which likewise comes from you. You give us life and breath and everything. It's all from you. It's all for you. Uh, yet we, we try and keep a lot for ourselves. I just pray you convict us in this, Lord. You, you push the needle of our heart. You, you make us both content and generous, happy, cheerful, sacrificial, that we're just giving ourselves to you. We, we're dead. Our, our lives, our first lives are, are over. We died in Christ. We still live, but now only in him. We've been bought with a price. The life we live after salvation just doesn't even belong to us. It's yours. It's used to be used now entirely for your kingdom, your purposes. Now, we do that imperfectly, but uh, convict us. May the spirit work in us in our hearts this morning that we give more and more of ourselves just to you. From our giving to all that we do, may it be from hearts that have been transformed to just truly love you, having received the gift you've given to us in Christ. So work in us this morning that we might bear fruit for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.